0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Wharton Current. I'm Charles LaChapelle, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Hamza Zafar, and today we're lucky to have Professor of Economics and Energy Policy at Wharton, Professor Arthur, Arthur Van Bantham, for a fascinating discussion on energy policy in the U.S. Let's get started! should we just uh, get started then? So we are pleased to, to have with us uh, Professor Arthur Van Bantam, who is a professor of economics and, um, and energy policy here at Wharton, who teaches the excellent class um, energy uh, energy market policy, which uh, we me and Hamza both have taken uh, over the past semester. And we're here to discuss um, his, you know, his area of research, as well as transportation emissions. Maybe we'll touch, uh, touch on uh, the current energy market, um, as well as uh, the, the green energy policies that are, uh, that are currently being discussed in, um, in government. And so, uh, Professor, if I can ask you to just maybe give us a brief introduction on yourself, uh, on your research area, for students that may not have taken uh, taking your class, uh, that would be great.
1: Sure, of course. Uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, my, my name is Arthur van Betham. I have uh, been at Wharton for about eight years now and um, I do a lot of research, uh, not just on energy, but on environmental policy in general. And um, one thing that always stands out to me is a really interesting question that I would like to understand and research is um, the fact that energy policies and environmental policies tend to have a lot of unintended consequences Uh, So, I have a whole research agenda about how some well-intentioned policies may actually not perform so well in practice because of loopholes and all kinds of unexpected uh, ways that um, uh, consumers and firms uh, uh, respond to them.
2: Perfect, that's great. Um, Professor, thanks uh, thanks a lot for that. So, maybe we'll go ahead and actually just dive right in. Um, Given your research interests, I think we, Charles and I both thought that it made a lot of sense to focus our discussion on transportation policy. Um, Can you maybe provide an overview, just maybe your view on transportation policy currently in the U.S. and whether in your view it's been effective in influencing consumer behavior and actually reducing emissions that come from this sector?
1: Yeah that's a a really good question. Um, uh, So maybe we should uh, mention first like what, what is U.S. transportation policy? There's quite a few but I guess Maybe the two most important ones are the, uh, the corporate average fuel economy standards and um, electric vehicle policies, and specifically the ones in California. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought maybe we can talk a bit about the, the, the fuel standards first, and if you want to, we can talk about electric cars afterwards. Perfect. Um, so you asked, you know, have they been effective? Well, actually, if you look at um, uh, the projections for uh, gasoline demand in the U.S., it's projected to go down. And um, the, the, the biggest reason for that is that we, we tightened the belts every year a little bit. Um, for um, automakers, we, we kind of force them to sell cars that are on average more fuel efficient. And in that sense, they've been effective uh, in, in reducing gasoline consumption over time. Um, but then the question is always right, I mean, has it been effective enough? Are we ambitious enough and could we have done this at the lower cost or more, more um, um, uh, could we have had better design of these policies? And I think that's really the, the, the interesting question because I think, um, um, you know, to both questions the answer is no. It could be much more ambitious and it could also be done much more smartly.
2: Gotcha. And maybe just a related question for the benefit, for my benefit also, for the benefit of our listeners. Transportation policy and fuel economy standards, are those pushed down by the federal government or can they vary from state to
1: state? Yeah, so this is a, a federal policy. So what a, what a fuel economy standard is, I'll simplify a bit, but essentially uh, the federal government tells the automakers to um, uh, to look at the, uh, the miles per gallon ratings of the cars they sell. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that needs to meet a certain minimum. So let's say it's 30 miles per gallon. And then every year it becomes a little stricter so that over time the fleet of new vehicles gets more fuel efficient. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the big question is, right, I mean, how, 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 how fast is that process? Like by how much do we increase those standards every year? Um, there used to be um, a 5% improvement year on year um, but recently, the administration has um, rolled that back, and now we have a one and a half percent improvement in miles per gallon ratings every year, which is a huge change. So we're basically um, um, in, we're basically imposing much laxer standards going forward. Um, and and the question is, right? Could, is it is it feasible to have that 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 faster growth in the standards? And most automotive engineers would say, well, sure. I mean, uh, there's lots of existing technologies. That could make cars much more fuel efficient. Other countries are doing it already, um, but we're just choosing uh, to be uh, relatively um, uh, relatively nice to automakers.
2: Interesting. And and what in your what do you think motivated that change from having the the improvement be five percent, and then reducing it to just
1: one and a half percent? Well, most of this is 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 kind of a political. Uh, a political choice right so there's there's been a lot of lobbying uh, mm-hmm. because clearly uh for automakers and 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 um, uh, oil companies who uh, who depend on selling oil um these policies are burdensome to them mm-hmm. and uh they figure that with the new administration they would have uh, more uh, political clout to actually uh, change those standards and that's what we've seen uh, uh playing out in the last two to three years no, trying, and, okay. Sorry. Go ahead, Charles. And,
0: yeah. And what are the the ultimate goals of these standards, and how do you calculate um, economically the the benefits that are that are brought by the standards versus the cost to automakers and to oil companies?
1: Yeah, that's a really really difficult thing to do. So actually, that's exactly what the what the Environmental Protection Agency needs to do in order to change the standards. They need to come up with a A cost-benefit analysis, which shows that, let's say, you wanted to tighten the standard, um, then you need to show that the combined benefits of stricter rules, so that could be less pollution, uh, consumers save money from buying less gasoline, um, less congestion, perhaps, um, that the uh, the benefits of of tighter standards um, uh, increase the cost, uh, uh, exceed the cost and this is uh, not a simple calculation actually i looked at those uh, a couple years ago uh, when i was studying the change in the standards and the the document was about 1600 pages so it's not exactly uh, um, an easy read Um, but this is um, um, this is necessary because uh, when the government changes the rules they're going to be challenged by states and environmental groups Um, so uh, it's 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 really important for the current administration to have a cost-benefit analysis that will um uh, sort of make sure that the new rules will actually stick in the in the courts gotcha and
2: then professor you had mentioned this very briefly um in addition to fuel economy standards some of the states such as california have taken action to introduce subsidies for electric vehicles what's you know kind of at a high level what's your view on on that policy tool do you think that that also is an effective lever in in influencing either behavior for consumers
1: or actually reducing and curbing emissions. Yeah, so California's case is really interesting. So California, just for background, has the um, the ability to set more stringent rules for cars than other states. Um, this is a, this is kind of a legacy from the past because they faced this this massive air pollution issue in in the L.A. region. Mm-hmm. Um, so California can go above and beyond, and then other states can say either we just uh, stick with the federal EPA rule or we follow California. So what California has done is um, they have essentially set a, a minimum percentage um, f- um, for electric vehicles that needs to be sold by automakers every year. And that minimum percentage goes up every year. And then about nine other states have followed California's lead. Um, so in, in that sense, California is really powerful, right, they, they, they basically dictate that automakers need to develop and sell electric vehicles, and that's quite important because once you develop these models, you might as well sell them somewhere else. And um, so in that sense, California has, has a lot of power uh, to, uh, uh, to drive uh, electric vehicle policy in the U.S., um, the, the issue is, though, that uh, the, the current Environmental Protection Agency has challenged California's um, uh, waiver, so the right for them to go above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're all kind of waiting for a Supreme Court decision on whether they can carry on with this policy, which would require about 8% of the new cars to be uh, electric in 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's not certain, uh, if there's no change in the administration and if the Supreme Court rules unfavourably, it's, it's not certain that this policy will uh, persist.
2: Gotcha, okay. Yeah, so what's interesting is Canada in the past has also toyed with, you know, transportation policy in the electric vehicle segment where Ontario had a pretty substantial subsidy for electric vehicles um, and then when the new Conservative government came in, I think it was either in 2017 or 2018, they, that was one of the first things on their agenda was to eradicate that. I mean, that had a pretty, mater- I don't have the numbers offhand, but that had a pretty material impact on new electric vehicle sales
1: in, in Ontario. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And it's the same, that's a really good example. It's the same in the US. If you look at um, where do electric vehicle sales happen, yeah, it's not a coincidence. I mean, those are uh, mostly the 10 states that have followed California. So that sort of tells you that those rules, when they are in place, they are quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the, the question is, first of all, um, will they still be there in a couple of years? And the other thing is, and this is why environmental policy is so fascinating, the other issue is that it actually interacts with um, the fuel economy standards that we talked about in a bit of a counterproductive way. And so to give you the example, so what kind of happens, right, if you force automakers to sell a lot of electric vehicles and if the automakers had a lot of trouble meeting their 30 miles per gallon fleet-wide average standard um, for the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards, Mm -hmm. now once they sell more EVs because they have to, um, because California forces them to, Mm-hmm. They suddenly over comply with with the with the fuel economy standards, and that basically means that for every EV you sell because of California, you can sell one more pickup truck somewhere else. Um, so the combination of those two policies has mm-hmm. all these unintended consequences that most people don't don't talk about. A lot of journalists are kind of unaware or ignore this issue. Um, mm-hmm. But those those um, the California policy is actually not as effective as many people think. Um, but of, of course from a very long run perspective in terms of the, the transition to an electric uh, you know fleet it, it may be helpful but in the short run uh, we'll just see more electric vehicles but also more pickups. Mm-hmm.
0: And so would you say that the 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 cap on emission is actually driven more by the emission standards, standards that are set um, at a national level because of this because of this relationship between the, the two?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the the, the 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 corporate average fuel economy standards regulates the average fuel economy of the whole fleet in the US. Um, and that as long as that is a, a binding constraint for constraint for the automakers in general, like everything you do to force them to sell something more efficient will free up some space for them to sell gas guzzlers. Uh, now, of course, the hope is that in, in five or 10 years' time, if, 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 if these electric vehicles become a lot cheaper as a result of those policies, and there's learning by doing, that maybe um, the, the corporate average fuel economy standards aren't binding anymore, and, or they could be tightened because there's political pressure that we could be more ambitious. So it could be indirectly, it could lead to lower emissions. But in the short run, it's really the CAFE standard that, that determines uh, uh, transportation emissions.
0: And who determines, who sets these standards? Is it the EPA or the, the um, just the federal government? Um, and how important is the, the, the administration that's in place? And I, I guess related to that, what has the, the current administration done compared to previous ones?
1: Yeah, so the, so the, the standards are, I mean, they're officially um, and set by the EPA, but of course the EPA uh, has a boss, which is the White House. Um, so, this is essentially a political decision by the, 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 the president. Um, the, the big change between the last administration and the current one is that under the Obama administration, the CAFE standards um, um, have been rising pretty quickly. And then the plan for 2020 to 2025 would, um, was to actually increase the required miles per gallon rating by uh, 35 to 5% every year. Um, that's gone down now to only one and a half percent per year. And um, so this is uh, just a political decision. There's no, um, um, I don't think there's any any deep economics behind this. This is um, uh, sort of a result of, you know, the difficult process between lobbyists, politicians and environmental organizations, and uh, the, the 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 bargaining power is clearly uh, 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 right now more towards the the oil companies and uh, and the automakers.
0: Interesting. And, and if we make parallels to, to the electricity uh, market, do you see um, something similar in, tra- in transportation, um, where oil maybe becomes displaced by electric vehicles, and and if so, would these standards become a bit, uh, I don't want to say obsolete, but uh, less relevant in curbing emission standards or curbing total emissions?
1: Sure. And that's the reason, I think that's a really good point. I mean, that's the reason why you may say that um, it, it, it's a bit, the, the view that these California EV standards are are, are currently not doing much, as I, as I just tried to explain, is a, is, 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 is a little cynical in the sense that, you know, in the short run, maybe yes. But of course, if they help uh, stimulates the growth of EVs to such an extent that it's going to be uh, a mass technology that's going to be adopted by many, many people, at some point, right, exactly as you say, you might say the CAFE standards don't matter anymore, um, and this the, the California policy or any electric vehicle policy just helps us move towards that new equilibrium faster.
2: Gotcha, okay. And then, Professor, interestingly, um, you know, one of the things that we also wanted to touch on was What's happened recently in energy markets, it sort of takes the value proposition to go electric at the consumer level. It sort of, you know, makes that less compelling at the moment where if you've seen the amount that you're paying for fuel at the pump come way down. And generally, you know, we've also seen fuel economy improve a lot. The cost of operating your vehicle, uh, if it's a gasoline vehicle, has generally come down and so it makes the value proposition to go electric certainly less compelling. What's your, what's your take on how that d- dynamic might play out over the next little while?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good point. I mean, of course, cheap oil is, is not particularly helpful for the electric vehicle segment. So I think this is indeed a case where the low oil prices are not helping uh, the transition to a greener economy all that much. Mm-hmm. Now, I should add that personally, um, uh, I know we've seen these spectacular headlines with uh, negative oil prices or extremely low oil prices. Um, the market currently doesn't suggest that this is what, what you know, the average market participant believes uh, to be the case for the next couple of years, right? Um, uh, oil futures are trading in the 30s, uh, going, uh, going out like a year or two years from now. Um, So, I I personally don't think and I also don't think the market thinks that these extremely low prices will persist um, because we're in a really unique situation right now where no one is driving and and the planes are grounded, Uh, but it's uh, sort of, you know, this is just my prediction, but I think once we go back to normal, uh, EVs will compete with oil prices uh, kind of in in a more similar range to what they've been competing with in the last couple of years.
0: Although $30 remains pretty low compared to what it was um, only a couple of years ago. Like we're, we're not that far off from the, uh, the $100 to $120 a barrel. Uh,
1: yeah, that's a fair market. point, but, you, but but keep in mind that what we shouldn't compare the oil price with, um, with the price of electricity, but really the price for gasoline. And even though, of course, the oil price matters for the price of gasoline, there's a lot of other costs that determine what you pay at the pump um, right? There's, there's uh, transportation and refining and, and marketing and, and what have you. And then in some other countries, uh, especially in Europe, uh, three-quarters of the price of gas is just taxed. That's not going to change. Um, so gas prices won't move as dramatically as the crude oil prices that we read about in the newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't disagree that low oil prices uh, will not be helpful for EV drivers, um, mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's not as extreme as just looking at the swings in the, in the crude oil prices. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's definitely a very good point. I know in Canada alone, the fuel price, there's a 24.7 cent per litre excise tax that's built into the fuel price, and that's before any sales tax that's added on. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, Professor, this <laughs> this question is uh, something we wanted to ask you, um, somewhat rhetorical, but would be really interested in getting your, your take on this. But um, if we were to assume for a moment that you can influence transportation policy in the U.S., what would be the one thing that would be top of your list something you'd really like to see come about over the next little
1: while uh that is a uh that's a tough question um so this is uh and you mean specifically about transportation policy or about um um sort of emissions in general um i'd say whichever one um either one that you want to tackle we'd be we'd be happy to hear your view on great well i'll say a little bit about both so because i i think to be quite honest what, what i think the, the current deep issue in the U.S. is is more an issue of political attitude rather than, you know, one specific ideal policy that's missing. But I think I would have, what I'm seeing at the Environmental Protection Agency, which is kind of the, you know, the first face that you see for implementing all kinds of transportation and other environmental policies, is that it's not just you know hands off or or unambitious? It, it, like right now, I almost get the impression it's on a, on a mission to weaken environmental regulation and enforcement um, based on this philosophy that you know the environment is kind of an annoying obstacle uh, that stands in the way of business, and that's just a view that I as an economist find very hard to uh, to swallow. Right, there's, there's there's it'd be really difficult to find an economist that would agree with the statement that. Uh, if we just let business do whatever it wants, uh, we would have the best possible outcome for society as a whole. So I think the you know the most important thing is that I, th- I think it's important that uh, the, the political attitude towards you know transportation but environmental policy in general changes from um, you know it's 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 a, it's a burden. It's always uh, it's it's never helpful to anyone towards this is something we need. And uh, it can also, uh, you know, boost enormous um, uh, economic production in, in the clean tech sector. Now, very specifically, um, I, I think uh, these standards that we talked about is they're, they're by far the most important transportation policies in the U.S. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: they're actually not that ideal. Um, <laughs> there's lots of reasons why you may not want to do transportation policies with a fuel economy standard. Um, there's a long list, I could just pick out two specific issues. So one is, one is something called the rebound effect, which is um, you set these standards, so you uh, make sure that people buy relatively efficient vehicles, let's say a Toyota Prius. Um, but now they're really cheap to drive and people drive more. And that undoes part of the emission savings effect that you want to achieve. Um, the other issue is there's lots of clumsy design features, so, so for uh, historical reasons, we chose to have um, much stricter standards for uh, so-called passenger cars and then laxer standards for uh, so-called light-duty trucks, but light-duty trucks in the U.S. Uh, means it's minivans, SUVs, crossovers, uh, pickups. Uh, so many vehicles classified as a truck that uh, last year over three-quarters of vehicles sold in the U.S. are uh, classified as a truck and therefore faced a really low standard. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's time to, uh, if we keep the standard, we need to reform them. But I think if I could really choose, I would ditch the standard and um, uh, have a gasoline tax in the order of magnitude of, say, a dollar per gallon which to lots of Americans would sound horrible, but I think uh, coming from Europe, that still seems like a pretty manageable uh, uh, tax, which is much simpler. It would discourage people from driving, and it would also take away all these loopholes and political games in the background. And I, I think that would be a much better economic outcome for uh, for the transportation market.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. Great, and I think if Charles and I learned anything from your class, that's, that's generally a more economically efficient way to tackle a problem like this.
1: Yeah, I believe so.
0: And Professor, I would love to ask you about the green stimulus that you mentioned before and how governments could use the stimulus package that they're using right now to simulate the economy to actually build out the renewable energy infrastructure.
1: Sure. Yeah. So 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 I think what, what's kind of interesting right now, right? We're we're in this um, uh, unique situation with um, very sad numbers about unemployment and lots of governments um, feeling the need to spend enormous amounts of money, right, to 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 fight unemployment and to somehow bridge the the the, the current uh, recession, and that that brings a really important moment. Um, which is, you know, how are we going to spend all that money? And is this a good moment to um, uh, right, to, 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 to say, like, let's invest it in, in in sectors that don't just create jobs to 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 mitigate the unemployment, but also put the economy on a, on a greener and more sustainable path and and build on the build the economy of the future, so to speak.
0: It's not something that. We typically hear uh, when we hear about stimulus in the news we, we, we hear a lot about infrastructure but people think more roads and bridges. Um, is there, uh, is there room for I guess spend in renewable energy and uh, how, how would that impact the economy and the jobs and is that somewhere where the, the stimulus dollar can actually be efficient?
1: Yeah that's a well that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I think infrastructure is, is indeed the, 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 the point where stimulus policies could overlap with policies that are good for, for reducing emissions. Um, so so you, you, basically what you would like to do as, as, as part of a stimulus package, right, is to you want, would like to lower taxes and invest the money in, uh, in investments that lead to, uh, to new jobs or at least save existing jobs. But quite often that leads to conflicting um, stories, right? So we're, we're spending a lot of money bailing out airlines, which is really good for, um, you know, the, the the really bad situation for lots of people that lost their jobs, but it's not particularly good for the environment. Uh, so th- so there's, a, there's a, a lot of people that are pushing now for like, can we just take a step back for a second, even though we're under time pressure, and think about, you know, what sector should we be investing the money in? And I think that um, something like renewable energy, right, would be, um, uh, would, would fit the bill to some extent in that it's it fits the general government's desire to build out new infrastructure um, with the associated construction jobs and um, some jobs in operation afterwards. Um, so in in that sense, it could help the COVID crisis, but it could also help the environment and put it on a on a, put the economy on sort of a, a different path than it is today.
0: And so why why do you think there is not as much appetite, or maybe this is just what I'm uh, what I'm reading, but um, it doesn't seem to be that there's appetite to go down that path, even though uh, major corporations like oil companies have come out and say like climate change is a big problem and we should invest in renewable energy and you're seeing public opinion shift towards um, climate change and renewable energy like why hasn't it uh, been a something that was proposed in your opinion um, for a similar package like this one
1: yeah it's 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 very true actually what we're seeing in a lot of countries is almost the opposite uh, right so we're in the u.s for example buying up uh, shale oil to fill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is kind of the opposite of green stimulus. Um, but it's not just the U.S., right? In Europe, we're, we're also um, uh, bailing out airlines and, 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 and so on. And so in, in, it's, it's very the difficulty, I think, here is that um, on a very, very short-term basis, it's probably easier to keep jobs by immediately paying existing companies to, so they can actually keep employees on the payroll, than to um, basically start investing in in new infrastructure, even though even if it could be it could happen relatively fast, this is going to be months or years. But we're talking about a timescale where we we're under pressure to keep those jobs exactly now this week. So I think that's one issue. Um, but there's a few examples I would say where where countries have have tried a little bit. And um, so, so one idea could be to do loan conditioning, right? So if you look at uh, some countries in Europe, like my own country, the Netherlands is one example, is that um, they will give loans to all kinds of businesses, including businesses with um, um, uh, that are based in the, in the fossil fuel sector. Um, but then there's a condition that uh, they're going to um, clean up their supply chain Uh, So uh, some airlines are now that receive um, uh, government loans are are, are forced to come up with a plan to uh, reduce their carbon footprint. And this this loan conditioning is something that's a little less dramatic, and we're also very used to this, right? Because the, the World Bank and the IMF have a long history of making loans conditional on all kinds of different things. So I think that's probably a more feasible thing to do right now. Uh, but if you ask me, what we should do, I mean, I think this is, in fact, um, a, it would be a wasted opportunity uh, to not uh, think, uh, you know, take a take a step back for a week and and, and think about, you know, um, what can we do to uh, to help Corona, but also uh, put our economy to, uh, uh, you know, a, a very very different path.
0: Yeah, it seems like it it would um, it would solve multiple problems at once. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's just uh, it's just it would uh, it would solve multiple problems at once, but I think uh, the it would still uh, probably be very difficult to save, um, you know, this week's unemployment claims. And and I think that's where the where the friction is.
0: Yeah. And maybe one last question uh, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. Um, Seeing that environmental policy, emission standards and. and, um, um. renewable energy infrastructure is so linked to, pol- uh, to policy and, go- and government and especially the, uh, the federal government, how do you see the race in 2020, how do you see uh, the climate um, aspect of it? Now that Joe Biden won the primary, like, do you see climate change to t- uh, taking a major part of the, of the campaign and the next administration? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I know we're, we're two Canadians here and, and, um, and a Dutchman. but. Uh, <laughs> yeah interesting to yeah,
1: hear the that's right <laughs> we're reflecting on on the country we have in common but no one uh, <laughs> no one is actually uh, uh from the us so right um well this is this is hard to tell i mean it's, it's just, the specifics are very difficult to tell I've, I've seen so many different um environmental ideas float around by different candidates in the and um, uh, former presidential candidates in the democratic party uh, that I think at this stage is really difficult to predict what exact policies um, uh, Joe Biden uh, would 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 advocate, uh, or maybe that's to say, like who exactly he w- he would listen to when as advisors on, on what to do. Um, I do think um, what's what's it, climate change will probably increasingly play a role in elections in the sense that if you look at the uh, electorate, especially the younger uh, voters. Um, the share of younger Republicans that um, kind of disagree with the party line and, and see environmental protection as something they worry about is steadily increasing over time. That's not to say this is the number one issue that they care about, um, but the trend is being upward for, for quite, a, quite a long time. Um, so, if this, if this continues, right, at some point, it'll, it'll be difficult for both parties to ignore that this is an um, important concern for, fo- for voters. And uh, so, so, my guess is that uh, in, the, in the short run, um, a new republic administration won't change that much. Uh, but I'm pretty convinced that over the next five to ten years... Uh, both parties will, will have to have a good answer to, to what, they, uh, what they're going to do about uh, uh, you know a cleaner economy because uh, the otherwise they might just lose the, uh, the, the voter
0: base. And hopefully by then market forces will have done will have uh, made that it's, it'd be easier to propose uh, renewable energy policy just like it did with the, the natural gas, gas prices. That displaced
1: the, the coal industries. That's right. That's right. Actually, it was it was right now. It's um, and and let say the the, the coal has been disappearing even without government policy. And uh, when you look at at European um, uh, offshore wind, uh, we're we're seeing uh, record cheap installations. So uh, it's uh, uh, definitely it makes things much easier if if these technologies are close to uh, uh, to competing uh, without subsidies. With, with existing fossil fuel sources.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thanks. Well, Professor, once again, I wanna thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. I thought it was a fascinating discussion. Um, and uh, we really appreciate appreciate you being on and I'm sure our listeners uh, will appreciate it as well. I'll of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, your audience will grow over time. I'm I'm convinced of that. Hopefully.
0: My mom mom will really like this (laughs) episode.